What is up, guys? And welcome to Montreal Madness with your host, Tony Montreal. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Glad you guys are back for another episode of Montreal Madness. Boy, we have a lot to go over today. Um, I will be recapping the Steelers' um, week one uh, win over the Giants last Monday night as well as previewing their home opener in week two against the Denver Broncos. Um, I'll also be going over and previewing a couple of marquee matchups that you guys should be um, really tuned in and focused on. We also have the Big Ten uh, making its debut in late October with an eight-game schedule. I'll be going over um, the U.S. Open that is currently going on right now, um, the second major championship um, in golf this year thus far. I'll also be getting uh, into a little bit of baseball, especially with the uh, White Sox becoming the first team in the MLB to clinch a playoff spot. Um, but before I get into all of that, I uh, want to talk to you guys about the controversy that shouldn't even be a controversy to begin with um, surrounding Pittsburgh Steelers offensive tackle Alejandro Valnuevo. So as we all know, Villanueva was a former Army Ranger who served three tours in Iraq um, a decade or so ago. And then, you know, as we all know, he came back to become a NFL football player and he landed on the Pittsburgh Steelers. And the controversy that's surrounding him uh, right now is that it was reported um, after the game on Monday night against the Giants that he erased the name Antoine Rose Jr. off the back of his helmet in place of a African-American uh, soldier who died in combat and earned the uh, Silver Medal Award for his act of bravery in combat. And the reason why the Steelers had the name Antoine Rose Jr. on the back of their helmets to begin with was that he was a African-American teenager who was shot and killed by police officers a few years ago after running away from the police. You know, without facts behind the whole issue and the way the media, not so much the, just the media in general, but what social media implemented was that Villanueva was insensitive um, of the fact that the Steelers took a team vote um, to put the name Antoine Rose Jr. on the back of the helmet, on the back of their helmets, and um, he supposedly violated that team vote and went behind everybody's backs. While that right there is completely and utterly false, and I'll give you three reasons why. The first reason was that um, Villanueva, before the game on Monday night, it was during the middle of the week actually. He even came up to Mike Tomlin and asked his permission if he could erase the name of Antoine Rose Jr. and put the name of the fallen soldier who died in battle. Tomlin okayed that, um, and he made a point in his press conference this past Tuesday in saying that he does not care what his players do as far as social justice issues are concerned as long as they do it with dignity and they do it with class. Um, so that, so that, that's reason one, number one, why this should not be a controversy to begin with. Uh, number two, there was no team vote whatsoever, um, about putting the name Antoine Rose Jr. in the back of their helmets. Um, numerous players, including inside starting linebacker Vince Williams, 
came out and said that there was no team vote whatsoever and that the name Antoine Rose Jr. came from the top of the organization um, to be put on the back of their helmets. That is reason number two. And the third and most important reason why this shouldn't be a controversy to begin with is because the Pittsburgh Steelers players and Coach Tomlin do not have an issue with what he did. It's us, the fans. It's the beat reporters in Pittsburgh. Um, it's those on social media that are making it a bigger deal than what it is. Um, you know, if you get your information from Twitter, from Facebook, from Instagram, whatever have you, from any social media outlet, if that's where you get the majority of your information from, and you believe it with a one hundred with one hundred percent, that that's your problem. That's on you. Um, this should have never been taken out of context. This should never been hardly brought up, but it was brought up um, on Tuesday, the day after the game. It started off with false reports that the team took a vote to have this guy's name on the back of their helmets. That turned out to be false. Um, it there was false reports claiming that you know the team had an issue with it and everything. That's not true. The players are quoted as saying they were surprised that it happened, but they weren't. But they weren't mad at him. Um, there have been numerous teammates, including Marquise Pouncey, who su who supported Villanueva for doing it. You have a former Steeler and Marcus Gilbert, former offensive lineman for the Steelers, um, who supports Villanueva for doing it. And last time I checked, Villanueva has earned the right to basically do whatever he feels necessary in his heart and in his mind. Um, because we, you know, we always like to talk about, you know, this is a country of freedom of speech and we have a right to do whatever he wants. He literally was in combat fighting people overseas that want to destroy um, us um, citizens in the United States. He has earned the right and then some to do basically whatever the hell he wants to do. Um, he did not come out and make a public statement. He did not. He did not come out and chastise why the Steelers um, decided to put the name Antoine Rose Jr. Um, on the back of their helmets. He simply erased the name off the back of the helmet and put the name. I believe it's Alan Cash. Um, like I said earlier, he is the African American who died in combat and earned the silver medal for his um, heroics in the middle of combat. Um, so I, I just really wish that all of us can just take a step back from everything, especially a thing that's such polarizing in our country right now with social justice issues. Just take a step back, you know, stop being in the middle of the fire and just observe and, you know, uh, observe and you know, articulate something other than just getting angry and using your emotions and just believing in the first thing you see on Twitter or on Facebook or on any social media outlet and believe it to be true. Because everything the everything from the Pittsburgh media that we heard at the beginning of the week, everything about what they said came out to be false a day or two later. Um, so I wholeheartedly believe that you know we should not be getting 
our factual information from social media sites that anybody, including myself, can put out there, claim to be true, and people will just believe it on a whim. Like, have we become that lazy as a society in general that, you know, we are willing to just believe anything a random stranger says without actually looking it up and, you know, asking more in-depth questions to people who have better knowledge, like Coach Tomlin, like the players in the locker room. So it just drives me crazy how a simple thing like what Alejandro Villanueva did didn't hurt anybody, didn't harm anybody whatsoever. All of well, at least for what I know, the majority of his teammates support him. Former players that have played with Villanueva support him in doing this. And, you know, he didn't break any team rules or anything like that. You know, he didn't cause any distractions within the locker room. The distraction is the media. It's people like me who are causing the distractions um, and trying to create something that's nothing to, to just stir up the pot, to try to get people riled up and to fight. And, you know, I, I believe wholeheartedly uh, that's the problem. Um, that we have right now, not just in sports, not just with football, but in life in general. So if you take anything away from this episode, um, just please, for the love of God, before you start seeing crap like that was put on Villanueva earlier this week, take a step back. Don't be commenting on Twitter, getting all emotional and riled up and everything. Um, do a little bit of research. Wait until you hear statements from Mike Tomlin first. Wait until you hear statements from different players and stuff like that within the locker room that play with him, that see him on a daily basis before you start going off on the guy and fighting with people on Twitter that you don't even know and will never and will never know. So yeah, um, there there was a controversy this week surrounding him that should have never been a controversy to begin with, and I am pretty pissed off and sick and tired of just seeing reports like this go on on a daily and weekly and monthly basis that have nothing to do with what actually went on and what actually happened. Because, you know, right there, those those were three circumstances that I just men mentioned that were falsely reported on before anybody in the media bothered to ask the higher-ups from the organization, like Tomlin, um, all the way down to the players inside of the locker room. So, yeah, that's why I'm a little pissed off to start, to start the show right now. It's people, and for the love of God in me, I don't know why Pittsburgh reporters and people within the, or not within the organization, but people who cover the Steelers and that, that sort of thing would want to make a controversy of this. Um, you know, I would think as a Steelers fan, you know, if you're a reporter for the Pittsburgh Steelers, you're ultimately a fan of the team. You want to see them do good and to win games and make it into the playoffs and, you know, hopefully seeing them in the Super Bowl and winning a seventh Lombardi trophy. You know, reports like these, they will not help the Steelers win the Super Bowl, which is the ultimate goal um, of playing football. Um, it only hurts the team. It causes um, distractions and everything. So unless you have the reports that are 100% factual, don't reporting on it, especially for you guys in the Pittsburgh media that want to see the Steelers win. I mean, that's all I saw on Twitter this whole week was Alejandro, Alejandro Villanueva this, Villanueva that. Um, you know, 
that's not helping the Steelers win. Um, you know, I get it. You're a reporter and you're trying to, you know, report stuff, you know, and everything like that surrounding your team. But it's not all about, you know, coming out with it first. You know, oh, I'm the first guy to report on this. Ha, ha, ha. You know, no. You know, you need to know 100% the facts and everything. And if that means waiting uh, to hear from Mike Tomlin in his um, in his press conferences every Tuesday, um, if that means waiting to hear from other players about this, then so be it. You know, we have lost the ability, you know, to be patient and wait for every fact to be truthful. We have failed to, you know, have the patience to wait and see if there's anything else that could implement um, the story being told. So it just drives me nuts and insane as a person of myself who went to school to become a journalist to see all of these journalists, not just in sports, but in politics and whatever else, to go out with every story just to be the first person to report it and everything. And that's the reason why we are in such the mess that we are in right now. So yeah, that's my take on that. It was a controversy that should never have been a controversy to begin with. Um, I feel sorry for Villanueva and the whole Pittsburgh Steelers team within the locker room, all the players who have to deal with this distraction that should not have been a distraction. Um, but you know, if you follow Villanueva and his whole history and everything, you know, I know he doesn't give a crap about what me or anybody else says about him. You know, he did his time doing what 99% of us never have the guts to do, and that is signing up um, to be in the military and to actually fight uh, in combat for all of us, for 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 us to have the ability um, to say unnecessary crap and falsify information about what actually goes on. Um, so I know he doesn't give a crap what you or, or or I say about anything regarding him or what he does or what he believes in. Um, but yeah, let's let's all please just take a step back and just have some patience and not to get so fired up and rile up and so emotional about something as little as this. Because um, like I said, Coach Tallman didn't have a problem with it. The players that gave statements didn't have a problem with it. And on top of all that, on top of all that, the players have basically torn to shreds what everybody reported on to begin with. Um, so that is my take on that. So moving on here, the Steelers came out with a very impressive win over the Giants on Monday Night Football. Um, it didn't come without losing a couple of key starters, uh, especially on the offensive line. Um, David DeCastro, he didn't play at all Monday night. He is out again um, against the Broncos in Week 2. Zach Banner, um, he is out for the rest of the season with a torn ACL. And God, do I ever feel bad for Zach Banner. That guy worked his butt off all through training camp. He slimmed down a little bit in his weight. He beat out Chucks for the starting right tackle position. Um, he won it fair and square. He put in his time. He worked his butt off, like I said. And he played a really good game against the Giants. And, you know, it happened late in the game, in the fourth quarter. And all of us Steeler fans right now, 
Uh, we um, we should be you know praying and hoping that he makes a full recovery and can come back from this because you know Zach Banner you know he's a young he's a young man um, you know his goal in life was to make it to the NFL he saw his dream come true last year with being on the Steelers roster and he made his dream come to fruition even more in earning a starting job on that really good offensive line the Steelers have in place already. So for that to happen, it just breaks my heart to see him go down with such a devastating injury like that. And not only did Zach Banner get hurt, uh, St- uh, Stefan Wisniewski, um, a Pittsburgh native, uh, he just won the Super Bowl with the Chiefs last year, a former Penn State offensive lineman. Uh, he got hurt with a pec injury and just uh, an hour or so ago was placed on the IR. So he will be out for at least another three uh, three weeks. So that means uh, Kevin Dotson, um, rookie um, who the Steelers drafted in the fourth round, I believe, he will be making his starting debut against the Broncos at right guard. And whenever he came in, in place of Wisniewski late in the fourth quarter when Wisniewski got hurt. I made it a point to watch him on every single Steelers play on offense. And boy, does that young man look like a tremendous offensive lineman for the Steelers. Um, He was known coming into um, the draft as being a awesome and prolific run blocker. And no, yes, the Steelers had the lead, so they didn't need to pass the ball at all. So his pass protecting ability, um, as far as what we've seen, um, is still to be unheard of because we weren't able to see him in camp or anything. But as far as run blocking is concerned, boy, can that guy ever pull and just smack a defensive lineman on his ass. You know, so I'm excited to see what he can do um, against this Broncos defense. He played very well in the limited times, in the limited snaps that he played against in the Giants late in that game. So I'm looking forward to seeing him play and develop um, in this game and in this upcoming season. Also, James Conner was out um, in the second half with an injury. But truth be told, I'm not a James Conner fan. I've said this time and time again. Uh, I think I predicted actually last episode that Benny Snell would take over the starting job by week eight. Well, I think he's going to take over the starting job by week two. Um, He had over 15 carries for 113 yards, I think. Um, He's just a complete back. You know, he's another guy like Zach Banner. He trimmed down and lost weight this offseason, become leaner and become faster. And boy, did we ever see what he worked on throughout this offseason. We've seen that. We've seen that come to fruition against the Giants in week one. Not only did we see the speed that came with him losing weight and trimming down, he still has that power to break arm tackles and to gain that extra yard or two. And that's something that James Conner isn't able to do. You know, his physique. You know he's a smaller back. He's five foot nine. He's less than two hundred pounds, but he plays like he's a Benny Snell. He plays like he's a Derrick Henry. Um, you know where he can just run over everybody, and that's the reason why he gets hurt time after time after time again. Um, he simply cannot do the things that guys like I just mentioned, Derrick Henry and the Mark Ingrams of the NFL can do, which is just 
bowl over and run people over and wear down a defense um, and break through arm tackles and everything. He can't do that. Unless he has a clean hole to run through, he's not an effective running back. Um, whereas Benny Snell, um, he proved it last season in the limited snaps that he got, and he proved it in the second half against the Giants last week, where he can take um, a, a run that is going to be stuffed in the line of scrimmage, um, or is going to be a one-yard gain, and he can turn it into a five, six-yard run, and then he can turn those four to five to six-yard runs into 20 and 30-yard runs, um, where we've seen in the fourth quarter, where he took a handoff in the backfield, slipped a tackle, broke out of an arm tackle in the backfield, and turned it into a 30-yard gain. James Conner, he can't do that. He's not, he's not the type of back that can break arm tackles on a consistent basis. So I hope... Um, you know, I know Mike Tomlin, you know, he's a professional head coach. Obviously he sees it if I see it and me and you see it. Um, so I really hope regardless of Connor's health status, even if he's hundred percent healthy, Benny Snell with what I seen, um, throughout last season and especially in the second half of Monday night, J uh, Benny Snell needs to be the starting running back for the rest of the season until he proves otherwise. Um, he's that, he's just that typical, he's a prototypical Steelers running back, north and south runner, that one cut back, um, that can wear a defense down. You know, he might only get two or three yards a carry in the first half, but by that, but by the second half rolls around and by the fourth quarter starts, you know, the opposing defense is tired, worn down, and he can turn those two, three, four-yard runs into big gains, and he proved exactly that against the Giants. And sticking um, with the offense from last week, just like I predicted on uh, my last episode, the Steelers, especially on offense, they were going to come out rusty. Big Ben, you know, had that terrible injury of his elbow, hasn't played for over a year, and, you know, he showed his rust in the first half. Um, I don't think he looked comfortable in the pocket. Um, he missed a couple of throws that he should have had early on. Um, he just, he was just rusty. And, you know, it took him a whole half um, to get things going. But the turning point for Big Ben last week was that two-minute drive um, late in the first half um, when he drove the team down the field and eventually found James Washington on a slant route around the 10-yard line uh, for a touchdown to put the Steelers ahead um, in the game. And like like I said last week, I, um, I don't know why everybody in the Steelers media was expecting Ben to light it up right off the bat and for the Steelers to essentially blow out the Giants. Um, you know, these guys have been covering the Steelers for multiple years. And even with a healthy Ben Roethlisberger the past few years, the Steelers have always, especially in offense, started out slow and methodic and anemic. Um, I, I don't have an answer as to why they always start off slow in offense beginning of the year. That's just the way it is. But I, am, I was really glad to see um, Big Ben shake off the rust. Um, he threw for three touchdowns. He threw over 200 yards. But the only thing that I am mildly concerned about is their ability to stretch the opposing defense. Um, one time, um, it was in the beginning of the second quarter, I believe, where he hit Chase Claypool 20-some yards down the middle of the field along the sideline in between two defenders, mind you, and Claypool 
um, made a spectacular catch along the sideline, catching the ball, keeping his toes in bounds um, for that big gain. But that was the only time the Steelers stretched the field. So I don't know if that was um, indicative of how the Giants were playing the Steelers, if they were, um, you know, playing a cover three or, you know, just having a safety over the top constantly, you know, taking away the deep threat. But they didn't stretch the ball down the field like I expected them to. They really didn't use the play action pass like I expected them to, especially um, in the second half where, you know, they were up, they had the lead, they were running the ball. And they could have taken a couple of other deep shots down the field. And they continue to work those crossing routes, those slant routes, um, a couple of bubble screens, a couple of screens to the running backs and stuff, which was what I predicted last week they would do. But I also thought they would take at least a few more deep shots down the middle, down the sidelines than what I expected. Um, so I'm curious to see what their game plan is against the Broncos. You know, I hope that they um, open up the playbook a little bit for Big Ben. Um, they take a couple deep shots down the field to Juju, to Deontay Johnson. And one thing I was really baffled about is the fact that they really didn't um, target Ebron a lot. Um, you know, it was a lot of hype in the middle of camp and even before the first game against the Giants that Ebron, he was going to be worked in in almost every formation. He's going to be worked in at, you know, at wide receiver, you know, at his regular position, a tight end, um, in the slot, you know, I mean, really didn't see a whole lot of, um, uniqueness where Ebron lined up in the formations that the Steelers, um, were in. So I'm curious to see, um, how they work Eric Ebron in um, against the Broncos in week two. But I really expected a lot more from him. You know, he only had one catch for, I think, it was 17, 18 yards. And that was it. They targeted him another time where Big Ben rolled out of the pocket, broke a, broke a sack, and, um, you know, tried to heave it over the middle to Ebron. It was a little bit behind him. It was a difficult catch for him to make. Um, he couldn't make it. But he only had two two targets the whole game. So I am looking forward to seeing um, Eric Ebron step up a little bit more and to give him um, a little bit more uh, targets, especially in the red zone. Um, he didn't get targeted once um, once they crossed um, into Giants' uh, 20-yard line in the red zone. And that's really the reason why they brought him in here to into Pittsburgh to begin with, was so he can be that big red zone threat for Ben to just heave the ball up to and he can go up and get it like a rebounder in basketball. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with Ebron in the Week 2 game plan. Now shifting over to defense. What more can you say about the Steelers' defense against the Giants? They held Saquon Barkley to 6 yards rushing. And boy, do I ever feel sorry for Saquon. Uh, I know he was a phenom at Penn State, but he had a shitty offensive line at Penn State too. I don't know how many times that Barkley was, you know, every time he got a handoff against the Giants... Um, he was just met with two or three Steelers in the backfield already as soon as he got the ball um, from Daniel Jones. And, you know, he just, out of 15 of his carries, 11 times he was tackled behind or at the line of scrimmage. I don't care if you're Barry Sanders, Emmett Smith, LaDamian Tomlinson, any running back that you want to mention, they wouldn't have gotten any more yards than Saquon Barkley than what he did on Monday night. Um, it was just terrible offensive line play by that by that Giants offense. And, you know, Saquon Barkley, you know, I feel I feel so bad for him. You know, when he was at Penn State, 
you know, his offensive line didn't give him anything either. You know, I'm surprised he did as well at Penn State as what he did with the offensive line that Penn State has when he was at, when he played for the Nittany Lions. You know, they, they were trash, and now he's playing for a Giants team where their offensive line is trash as well. So I just feel bad for the kid. He is a generational back, just a generational overall talent, and he is not being utilized the way he should be with the Giants. I mean, you put him with the Steelers, you put him with the Dallas Cowboys, where their offensive line is regarded as the best in the NFL, he's putting up over 150 scrimmage yards, damn near 200 scrimmage yards a game probably. Um, That is just the kind of talent that Barkley has. And when you get tackled 11 of your 15 carries behind or at the line of scrimmage, that is not on the running back's fault. That's on the offensive line's fault right there. So I just really feel bad for him. But no, the Steelers' defense, I mean, they crowned a line of scrimmage. Um, they had eight, nine, even ten men in the box at one point. And Mike Tomlin even said in his press conference that um, he put the secondary at risk to make sure that he stopped Saquon Barkley. And that was the game plan, and they executed it to perfection. And I know that Daniel Jones, he did pass for 275 yards against the Steelers secondary. Um, I know there's people out there that are going to say the Steelers secondary, um, they took a step back from what they did last year. But that just wasn't the, the game plan. Um, I know they got beat a couple times over the top. Um, one was a miscommunication with Steven Nelson and Joe Hayden where they allowed that touchdown to Darius Slayton in the middle of the field in the first half. Um, but you're going to have those things in the first game of the regular season, especially if no preseason games. Um, so overall, I am really satisfied with the way that Steelers defense played. They didn't lose a beat um, from how they played last year. And the biggest surprise um, for me on the Steelers defense is just how well Devin Bush played against Saquon Barkley. Um, he was lined up with Barkley on almost every play. Um, he was assigned to cover Barkley at all times, and he did one hell of a job, not just in the run game, but covering him in the pass game as well. Um, he is going to be their next Ryan Shazier. I believe he's even better than Ryan Shazier. He's bigger than Shazier. Um, he's just as fast as Shazier, and I think he's even a better tackler than Shazier. Uh, he led the Steelers in tackles on Monday night. Um, he is just an overall great linebacker um, that the Steelers desperately needed in the middle um, of that front seven since Shazier went down with that horrific spinal injury he suffered against Cincinnati a few years ago. So I'm glad to see his progression from last year. Overall, that Steelers defense is dynamite. If this offense, the Steelers offense, if they can put up just 25 points a game on average, it's going to be damn near impossible for any team to beat the Steelers because the defense, they're not going to allow more than um, 23, 24 points a game. It's going to be a rare occasion the Steelers give up you know, more than three touchdowns a game and around 24 27 points a game. Uh, that's that's going to be very rare to see the Steelers' um, defense give up that many points and that many touchdowns. So the Steelers' offense, um, if they can just be half as good as they was last year, which they will be with Ben Roethlisberger, they, this team, um, the sky is the sky is the limit for what this for where this team can go. And as far as a preview for the Denver Broncos game on Sunday afternoon, um, this should be another win for the Steelers. Um, they proved to me that last week that after they shook off that rust 
as far as the offense goes and Big Ben goes in the first half, I believe Ben is going to be ready for week two. And this offense is going to be ready for week two against the Broncos. I expect them to, um, just like in the game against Monday night, um, they were really run heavy in the first quarter. It was like they ran the ball two times and they threw it on third down and they kept on doing that throughout the first half. I expect the same thing again, although I expect them to get in a lot more third and manageable situations. Um, I expect them to get first downs while running the ball. And I expect them to do a lot more play-action passes, especially if Benny Snell gets the start on Sunday, which he should. Um, Even if Connor's healthy, I know he practiced fully today um, on their injury report. Um, But regardless whether Connor's healthy or not, Benny Snell should get the start. And if he does, um, expect sort of the same game plan that they'd get against the Giants, but they will execute a lot better. Um, than what they did against the Giants. So I expect more of the same, but a lot better execution. I expect the Steelers to do a lot more play action uh, and to connect, and to connect um, with Juju, to connect with uh, Deontay Johnson, and to connect with Eric Ebron down the middle of the field. I don't think this game is going to be close. Um, the final score might be closer than what the game really is, uh, much like the Giants game, where the Steelers were up by two scores all of the... Uh, second half and the Giants made it a lot closer game near the end in garbage time than what it should have been so my final prediction for the Steelers Broncos game is Steelers 31 Denver 21 but I think that final score is not to be indicative of how the game actually played Um, I expect the Steelers to get to an early lead um, I expect Big Ben to do his thing, connecting a couple touchdown passes. I don't believe he'll get to over 300 yards because, quite frankly, I don't think he'll need to throw for over 300 yards. I believe that Benny Snell, he's going to get the rock. He's going to get over 20 carries. He's going to get over another 100 yards. Um, I think he'll score a couple touchdowns as well. Um, so, yeah, I don't expect this game to be close at all. And like I said, the only reason why I have it you know, is 31-21. It's because of garbage time for the Broncos. Um, so I think they're going to put the foot on the gas pedal. I believe the Steelers are going to be pressuring Drew Locke a lot. Um, he's another young quarterback that the Steelers will be facing. I believe they're going to throw him a lot of different looks. They're going to be blitzing him from everywhere. They're going to take Melvin Gordon out of the game early. And yeah, I really just don't expect this to be a competitive game, um, at all, but it would not surprise me if the Steelers fall asleep a little bit, especially coming out of the gate, um, so that would not shock me at all. However, I just do not believe that this will be a close-knit game to the very end. The Steelers have just too much talent, especially on defense, especially the matchup they have. Um, like I said, you have a young quarterback in Drew Locke. You have a lot of rookie wide receivers like Jerry Judy. Um, you have guys like K.J. Hamler, former Penn State Nittany Lion, who got drafted this year. Um, you have an unproven offensive line. You know, they have Melvin Gordon, yes, um, but he's going to be the workhorse for this game. Philip Lindsay is out. And on Denver's on, on Denver's defense, um, Vaughn Miller won't be playing. And on top of that, Denver has to come to Pittsburgh to play a 1 o'clock game. And it's statistically proven that teams out west coming to play in an eastern time zone at 1 o'clock games have a tough time winning those ball games. So they have, Steelers have an advantage in that. Um, and they just have an advantage in every phase 
um, of the game in offense, defense, and special teams. So, yeah, I just don't think this game is going to be close. And my final score is 31-21 Steelers. And the Steelers should go uh, 2-0 to start the season. So moving on to a couple of key matchups in the NFL to look forward to. The first one is the Rams playing um, against the Eagles in Philadelphia. On Sunday night, the Rams um, were able to hold off the Cowboys uh, to win their season opener. And the Eagles, surprisingly, especially to me, uh, lost their opener to the Washington football team. And after the Eagles scored uh, the first 17 points of the game, they gave up 27 unanswered points in the second half to lose 27-17. to And much like their woes last year in protecting Carson Wentz, um, they continued that same theme. They gave up multiple sacks. Uh, Carson Wentz was never comfortable in the pocket. He got hit on almost every drop back that he went to pass on. And that whole team just looked in disarray in the second half. And it's not like the Washington football team is this big juggernaut in the NFL like the Chiefs or the Ravens or anybody like that. I mean, they're a bottom feeder in the NFC and they're a bottom they're a bottom feeder in that NFC East division at least supposedly and the Eagles just took a crap on the field against them in week 1. Um I mean, that was an upset if you've ever seen an upset before. I mean, I yes, I know the Eagles were without Miles Sanders, their starting running back. Um but I mean, they are a talented enough team. They should be able to win a game without their starting running back. And they just looked awful. I mean, yes, I know I just mentioned um, them giving up a lot of sacks and everything. But on defense, I mean, I just didn't see them giving up 27 points against this Washington football team led by Dwayne Haskins. I mean, in the second half, if you watch that game, they were just marching up and down the field at will. And it wasn't like Dwayne Haskins was scrambling and, you know, running away from pressure and, you know, gaining yards of his feet. I mean, he was your prototypical stay-in-the-pocket quarterback, just hitting wide-open receivers down the field, um, checking it down to his running backs and everything, and then picking up yards after the catch and stuff. I mean, this game, I mean, in the fourth quarter, it wasn't even close. I mean, the Ravens had, I mean, not the Ravens, the Washington football team had all the momentum on their side and... You know, they didn't let the foot off the gas pedal and they just took it to the Eagles and they punched him in the mouth and they ended up winning that game. Um, so now they're heading into week two against the Rams at home. And I don't want to say this is a must win game for them, especially if only being at week two. But if they go 0 and 2 at the beginning of the season with losses against the Washington football team and the Rams, I mean, I don't know how this Eagles team gains enough confidence. Um, to get back into the NFC East and to not only win that division, but just make it into the playoffs in general. I mean, everybody at the beginning of the year had this team easily making the playoffs. Um, they are predicted to win this division uh, in the NFC East. And, I mean, I know it's just one game, but this, like I said, this almost has to be a must-win game for them, or at least to prove to themselves that... Um, that they are not the same team that played in week one. Now, as far as the Rams is concerned, 
Uh, they looked pretty good against a very talented Cowboys team, at least on paper. Um, they held um, Zeke in check for the majority of the game. He didn't rush for over 100 yards. Um, Dak Prescott, um, you know, they held him in check as well. Um, and Amari Cooper, too. Um, you know, their star guys on the Cowboys, uh, they really didn't go off against this Rams defense. And the Rams defense looked really, really good. Um, now, I know there was controversy late in the game with a supposed push-off against Jalen Ramsey, Ramsey and him selling it to be an offensive pass interference call. But regardless of that, though, um, that Rams defense, they looked really good. Um, the offense read by Jarek Goff, um, you know, they didn't light it up or anything, but they did what they had to to win. Um, this is a very intriguing game. And, um, you know, I would... I want to say the Eagles will come back and um, put that week one loss behind them and look like the Eagles team that they should be, but they're facing a really tough Rams team. And I think the likes of Marlon Mack um, is going to take advantage um, of that Philadelphia Eagles front seven. I believe he's going to have a good game. Um, you have tremendous wideouts like Cooper Cup and Robert Woods um, that Jared Goff can throw the ball to. And, you know, Robert Woods, speaking of Robert Woods, he is a really um, a great game changer as far as how they utilize him in the run game. He had the most rushing attempts last year as a wide receiver. And I think they're going to do a lot more of that against the Eagles. Um, they're going to make them run sideline to sideline a lot. Uh, something that the Eagles, they're not known to be a fast defense, especially um, in that front seven. So I honestly have the Rams uh, beating the Eagles 27 to 21. And the Eagles, much to the surprise of everybody, will start the season off at 0-2. And if that does happen, I do not know if the Eagles will end up making the playoffs after starting 0-2. You know, I know it's the beginning of the season and a lot of stuff can happen. But if the Eagles go 0-2, like I predict, um, they're going to lose a lot of confidence if their confidence isn't already shot after losing to a Washington football team. Like I said earlier, that is not very good, to say the least. Um, so the Eagles, they're going to have their work cut out for them. This is going to be a really close game to the very end, but I believe the Rams, they just have too much firepower and they're balanced on in every phase of the game that they're, they are going to come out on top and they are going to upset the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, my other marquee matchup that you guys should be looking forward to is the Seattle Seahawks playing uh, this new New England Patriots led by Cam Newton. And right off the bat, I'm going to say this right now. The Seahawks are going to beat the New England Patriots. However, though, you know, this Seattle defense, um, they just acquired Jamal Adams in the offseason from the Jets. They gave up 450 passing yards to Matt Ryan and the Atlanta Falcons. Now, I know the Falcons, you know, they have, um, you know, Matt Ryan, they have Julio Jones, they have Calvin Ridley, they have a bunch of talented wide receivers and a really good offense. I just don't think that this Cam Newton led Patriots offense is like the Falcons offense. Um, they are a run first team now. And, you know, Cam Newton, he ran the ball 15 times for 75 yards um, last week against the Dolphins. 
if Cam Newton keeps doing that every game, he's going to get hurt eventually. And honestly, that's for any quarterback. And it's just the way quarterbacks train. You know, they are not trained to be um, running backs. Um, they don't have the same workouts our running backs do. They can't take um, the body hits that wide receivers and running backs take um, on a weekly basis. Um, they're just not built and trained to play like that. So I believe if the Patriots offense, they keep um, doing all these design runs with Cam Newton and everything, Cam's going to get hurt eventually. He's going to get banged up, and he's going to get slower and slower as the season goes on, even if he um, doesn't miss games or whatever. So I I believe that, Se that Seattle, although this is going to be another close game, um, Seattle is going to take this game. Um, they just have too much firepower on offense with Russell Wilson, Tyler Lockett, DK Metcalf, uh, Chris Carson, and the list goes on and on. Um, but this game, it's going to be one uh, on the back of uh, Russell Wilson. Um, this Patriots defense, I've stated this earlier in a couple of my previous episodes, they've lost a shit ton of defensive starters from last year. All of their starting linebackers are not playing uh, this year from last year. Their secondary, outside of Stephon Gilmore, um, they are not uh, that good like they were last year. Um, so I expect Russell Wilson and the Seahawks team to put it to New England. And I think they win by a final score of 21 uh, to 16. And, um, you know, I know... Any defense that is played under Bill Belichick is going to be a good defense, yes. But they are not the same team that they were last year. Um, Russell Wilson will find a way to make plays down the field to his playmakers. And it's going to come down to if Cam Newton can you know, put up points for this New England um, Patriots offense. And I don't think he can do that. Um, the only weapons he has around him is Julian Edelman. And outside of that, that's basically it. Nikhil uh, uh, Harry, he's still an unproven talent at the wide receiver position. I don't have any faith in him. Um, they have no tight ends anymore um, that are worth regarding. Sonny Michelle, I believe he's a overrated running back. Um, he proved that last year. He wasn't the same guy like we saw in the playoffs two years ago um, when the Patriots um, beat the Rams in the Super Bowl. You know, I just... Do not think that the Patriots have the talent, which is something that we haven't been able to say for the past 20 years to play the likes of a Seattle team led with guys like Russell Wilson and Tyler Lockett and Jamal Adams and all those guys. So, yeah, I have the, Patri I have the Patriots losing to Seattle 21 to 16. So switching gears a little bit here, um, finally, the Big Ten Conference has worked out a deal to where we will see them play um, a limited schedule, mind you, but they will play um, starting on October 23rd and 24th with a nine-game schedule, um, including the Big Ten Championship as well. And I'm not going to go a lot into it because there's really nothing else, to, not a lot to talk about the situation. But I am very happy, um, not just um, for everybody involved, like the schools and everything like that, and for us fans, that we can finally see, you know, my favorite team, uh, the Penn State Nittany Lions play, um, and, you know, the likes of Ohio State, Wisconsin, Michigan, and those other teams. But I am so excited for the players to be getting back out in the field 
and showcasing their talents to potential NFL scouts. Because in my mind, that's what this all boils down to. You know, you have the ACC, the SEC, and the Big 12 all scheduled to play um, an all-conference schedule, 10 games. And that was going to hurt a lot of players in the in the Big 10 and the Pac-12, too, um, as far as their stock in the draft in the next year or two. Because a lot of a lot of those players that are juniors and seniors um, that are looking to step up and make a name for themselves um, for the upcoming drafts in the next couple years, it was really going to hurt their stock. Um, you know, because it's not fair to them to have other players and other conferences get playing time and have essentially a full a full schedule of games, and then to see these guys not play anything. You know, Reggie Bush said it best on uh, Fox uh, on Fox Sports earlier this week. To where if one conference isn't playing, none of them should have been playing to begin with. But alas, that didn't happen. And the Big Ten, the Pac-12, um, early on they decided they weren't going to have a season. But thank God they got the uh, proper protocols together as far as testing and stuff goes. They were able to work out a schedule for every team and everything to play to play a season and to most importantly let the players play. You know, yes, would the schools of the Big Ten, the Pac-12, would they have lost money and everything? Yes. But those schools have enough money to where they wouldn't be hurting. Let me just tell you that. It was the players that would have been hurting and taking the full front of them, you know, not playing a season. So I am so happy um, for the players, for them playing, um, you know, especially for their stock, you know, in the upcoming drafts and everything in the next year or two. I'm happy for that. I'm happy to see my Penn State Nittany Lions take the field um, in late October. And I'm looking forward for the upcoming season. I will be giving a preview for the Penn State Nittany Lions season and the Big Ten Conference in general as well in my upcoming episodes as we get toward the end of October and everything. But I just want to say that I'm so happy for everybody involved, especially the players, for just, you know, those those people, the commissioners and everything like that to, um, you know, work out a schedule um, to get uh, the teams playing and everything. I'm just so happy for everybody involved. And, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm excited, I'm elated, um, and everything like that. And I am just thrilled to see the Big Ten Conference and to see my Penn State Nittany Lions um, be able to take the field um, for the 2020 season. So the last thing I want to talk to you guys about today before I wrap up the episode is that we have the 2020 U.S. Open going on right now with Patrick Reed as your leader at minus four going into the weekend. And then you have the phenom who can just drive the ball like no other, Bryson DeChambeau, um, sitting in second at minus three, and then Justin Thomas in tied for third place at minus two as of right now. But you have a lot of big-name guys who are most likely going to miss the cut. Uh, with Jordan Spieth at plus 14, Phil Mickelson at plus 13, and Tiger Woods, who is sitting at plus 11 right now, is going to miss the cut at Wingfoot Country Club. And I don't know how many times I have to repeat myself um, about Tiger Woods you know, to all my friends and to uh, everybody um, who um, plays golf and are Tiger Woods fans, Tiger Woods is not the same Tiger Woods that you that we all used to know and love. 
Um, he is a shell of himself right now as a golfer. Um, I mean, you can't really blame Tiger Woods. I mean, he's in his 40s. He's had numerous surgeries on his back. He's had some knee pr- troubles in the past. He's just not the same golfer that he used to be. Um, you know, everybody likes to think Tiger Woods, you know, he's still the best golfer on tour and that he can consistently compete um, for, you know, major championships and he can continue um, winning at a pace that we were accustomed to seeing. And that's just not the case anymore. I mean, like I just mentioned, one, he's old and he's dealt with numerous injuries in the past. Um, but two, there's just so many young and talented golfers out there like Roy McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, uh, Justin Thomas, uh, Matt Wolf, Bryson DeChambeau, and the list goes on and on. Um, he's never had to, to uh, compete against this many talented golfers before, um, even back in his prime. Because uh, he's when he was winning all those major tournaments and winning all those um, you know other tournaments and everything, you know. Who did he actually have to play against? You know, he, he played against guys like Sergio Garcia, who's only won one major championship in his career. Um, he's played Phil Mickelson. You know, yeah, he is a great golfer in his own regard. Um, Ernie Els is another one that comes to mind. Other than that, he really didn't have to face the competition that he is facing right now. And, you know, he you know, he can't outdrive everybody like he used to. He can't, um, you know make shots and play shots like he like he used to do back in his prime um you know yeah i know he won the masters last year you know great and good for him but that right now i'm telling you guys right now that is the last major championship you will see tiger woods ever win in his career he is just not that same golfer anymore there is just too many uh talented golfers out there that that can win and compete against him and he like he just he's just not the same golfer anymore, and it's just it just baffles me to see everybody hype up Tiger Woods. And, you know, oh, it's the return of Tiger Woods. He's back and everything and blah blah blah. Uh, he's just not the same Tiger Woods that we're all so used to seeing. It's kind of like Tom Brady in a way. We're so used to seeing him go to Super Bowls and the win Super Bowls and MVPs and all this stuff. Tom Brady. He's 43 years old. He's not the same quarterback as he once was. Um, he's not, you know, even with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and all the talent that's surrounding him, he's not the same quarterback anymore. And it's no different with Tiger Woods. He's not the same golfer as he was, um, you know, back in his prime, in the late 90s and early 2000s and everything. You have too many talented golfers that he has to compete against on a, you know, on a tournament basis and everything. And he's just... He's just not that good anymore. He's not even a top 20 golfer on tour. Um, you know, to me, he's he's outside the top 20 as far as talented golfers as of right now is, is concerned. I mean, yes, he is probably going to go down as the best golfer to ever play the game. You know, I will give him that. You know, I'm not a Tiger Woods fan or anything like that, but he is the GOAT um, of the PGA. He is the Michael Jordan of golf. But, you know, I see Tiger Woods as the Michael Jordan who played with the Charlotte Bobcats. Um, You know, he was a shell of himself when he played for Charlotte. Um, You know, MJ is concerned. Um, And that's that's who we're seeing right now with Tiger Woods. You know, he's the Michael Jordan of the of the um, Charlotte Bobcats. He's just he's old. He's had too many injuries. He's playing with a lot of great and young, talented golfers. He's just not that guy anymore, guys. I'm sorry. 
Sorry to you know throw that piece of reality at you. He's just he's just not that same golfer anymore. But moving on to the uh, actual tournament here, you know you have Patrick Reed at minus four, Bryson DeChambeau in second at minus three, and Justin Thomas sitting at uh, tie for third at minus two. And I believe this is Justin Thomas's tournament to lose right now. He's sitting two. He's only sitting two back going to the weekend. Um, and if the weather predictions hold up to be true, um, just like today, it's going to be windy as hell for the rest of the weekend. Um, it's going to be really difficult to see guys in red figures come uh, Saturday and Sunday. Um, so if him only being two back going into the weekend, he is such a well-balanced golfer. You know, He's great off the tee box. He's great with his irons and wedge, wedge game, and he is really good with his putter as well. So I see him winning the 2020 U.S. Open at Wingfoot. Now Bryson DeChambeau, he's going to give him a run for his money because with a lot of guys this tournament, um, they're taking irons um, off the tee box, laying up and hanging in the fairway. Bryson DeChambeau is just saying, screw that. I'm going to take my driver out. I am going to do what I do best. I am going to bomb it 340, 350 yards down the center of the fairway. I am going to outdrive all of you. I am going to be with 150 yards or less into these greens. Uh, and, and these greens are super fast, guys. They're almost like ice, you know. And unless you're, you know, putting it, you know, right next to the cup, um, you know, with all these sloped greens and everything, you know, you have to be that close in order to, in order to stick it close um, into the hole. And, you know, yeah, he's going to give Justin Thomas run for his money. But at the end of the day, I think this is Justin Thomas's tournament to lose and that he is going to win at Wingfoot. Um, for his first U.S. Open major championship. So if all that being said, I think that's a wrap for this edition of Montreal Madness. We had a lot to go over today. I hope you found everything insightful and entertaining as I did. As always, uh, make sure to follow me um, on Facebook and on Twitter at Montreal Madness. Uh, make sure to subscribe to me on uh, Apple Podcast and on Spotify. And until next week, see you later, guys.